Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 27. I'm going to go to the end of the chapter at verse 43. Our context is this. In the first 26 verses of Acts chapter 10, Peter has been given a vision that some people... He's in Joppa, and he's been given a vision of unclean animals in a sheet. And he is told that some uh, Gentiles are going to be coming down the road from Caesarea, about 30 miles away, and they want him to come up there and preach the gospel to these Gentiles. Of course, this is a big deal for the Jewish Peter, but he gets over his prejudice that things are unclean. He goes up there, and so... As he's up there, he, uh, he walked back with the three men that came from Caesarea, and he took three brothers with him from Yapa, and they get go up to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea. We pick up the story in verse 27 and read through 28. While talking with him, that means while Peter was talking with Cornelius, he, Peter, went on in and found that many had come together there. In another place it says his friends and relatives came. Peter said to them, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. Peter understood that true meaning, the true meaning of that vision he had with the animals in the sheets, as the NIV Study Bible and Clark say. The NIV Study Bible says that Peter clearly knew that the barrier between Jew and Gentile had been removed, that famous barrier that's mentioned by Paul in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12 which I'll read. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Yeah, well, that's how it used to be, but now that barrier of partition between the Jew and Gentile has been torn down, and Peter is living proof of it as he is a Jewish man getting ready to go into a Gentile house. Now, how is it forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner? Well, it could be the law of Moses, but actually the law of Moses doesn't directly say it. John Gill quotes Deuteronomy 7, 2, When the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, talking about their Gentile pagan enemies, the Jewish pagan enemies, you must completely destroy them, Deuteronomy says. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. But I have a whole, I, I, I kind of question Gill's application here. I have trouble applying this verse to current conditions in Jesus' time. Jew, Jews were not currently trying to kill Gentiles. It, this verse does show how the current attitude toward Gentiles might have developed, that you can't eat with them and so forth. But I think John Gill is more on the money here when he says it's the tradition of the elders that say that's the Jewish law, the oral law, the rabbinic law, the Pharisees law, the tradition of the elders. That is what says that Jews cannot associate with Gentiles, not the Mosaic law. Quote from John Gill. This is quoting a tradition of the elders. It is forbidden a Jew to unite himself to Gentiles because they are suspected of shedding blood and he may not join himself with them in the way. If he meets a Gentile in the way, he causes him to turn to the right hand. If they ascend by an ascent or descend by a descent, the Israelite may not be below and the Gentile above, but the Israelite must be above and the Gentile below, lest he should fall upon him and kill him. And he may not even go with or alongside by him, lest he break his skull. In other words, don't let a Gentile ever get above you because he might fall on you and kill you. And don't let him go alongside of you because he might turn to the side and bust your skull in. Well, that kind of gives you the attitude that rabbinic quote. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown 
does not take the same extreme view that Gill does concerning the Jewish attitude toward Gentiles, here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's quote. There was no express prohibition to this effect that you couldn't associate with Gentiles, and to a certain extent intercourse was certainly kept up, but intimate social fellowship was not practiced as being adverse to the spirit of the law. I think I grew up when I was very young, I grew up in the segregated South, and we had we talked to black people all the time, but you couldn't be in the same house or the library or the store, you know, that kind of stuff, the barber shops because of segregation. But you could talk to them and, 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 and be polite and all that kind of thing. And that might have been more of the situation here between Jews and Gentiles. I don't know. I wasn't there. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown seems, and Gill seem to disagree on, on what the situation was. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says there was no express prohibition to the effect of associating with Gentiles on the part of Jews. Sounds to me like Gill has an express prohibition when he quoted that rabbi that says, it is forbidden a Jew to unite himself to Gentiles. So anyway, the scholars disagree. But anyway, we know that generally Jews did not have too much to do with foreigners, with Gentiles. But Peter says, God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean and including you, Cornelius, even though you are a Gentile. This is a big, big, big concession on the part of Peter. Now, of course, when he was saying, I must not call any person unclean, he means Levitically unclean, ceremonially, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, not morally unclean, or not even hygienically unclean. He's talking about Levitically unclean. Now, notice that Paul says to Cornelius, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with Gentiles. Well, how would Cornelius know that? He's not a Jew. It's not part of his tradition. It's not part of his law. Well, I think the word had probably gotten out. I think if you were discriminated against from entering into Jewish houses, as long as you've been in Israel, you would learn pretty quick what you can do and what you can't do. So I think that's not a surprise that Cornelius knew about that prohibition against Gentiles. We go to verse 29 and Acts 10. Peter continues, That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. What's why he came? Well, because he had that vision. Because God told him that he's not going to call anybody unclean. God had shown him that. He didn't. Peter didn't mention the vision, and that's what he was referring to. So I asked Peter, content, continues, why did you send for me? Now, why did Peter ask that? Well, options. He could have not known, and so he's wondering, why did you send for me? Well, that can't be, because the messengers had already told Peter why he was to come up to see Cornelius. We read in Acts 10:22. They, that's the messengers from Cornelius, said this to Peter. Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. These messages are referring to a vision that Cornelius had had saying, you need to go up and ask Peter to come down. So they didn't ask, Peter didn't ask Cornelius, why did you send for me? Because Peter didn't know why Cornelius sent for him. He knew because the messengers had told him. Perhaps John Gill says that Peter wanted confirmation directly from Cornelius, just wanted to hear Cornelius say it. Perhaps it was a natural way to proceed on to what Peter was going to say, and I think that's probably it. It's just a polite way of continuing the conversation. Now, why did you send for me? Knowing perfectly well. It's a rhetorical question, in other words. He already knew the answer to it. Adam Clark says maybe Peter wanted to let the whole company gather around here. Why? Because this is a big deal. There, He wants the centurion to announce to everybody, I want you to come up to preach to us about salvation, about the Messiah Jesus. Maybe they hadn't heard about the vision that Cornelius had and so forth, and 
And that actually makes a lot of sense. Peter just wanted to let everybody know what's going on. We go to verse 30, 31, and 32 of Acts 10. Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in a dazzling robe stood before me. Dazzling robe, that's how they described angels. And said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Yapa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Now, in a previous audio, unfortunately, I said it was about, I think I said it was about three days it took for between Cornelius' receiving a vision and Peter getting there. Actually, it's four days, according to this verse here in verse 30. Remember, the Jews counted a part of a day as a full day. So here's how the NIV splits out those four days. On day one, the angel appears to Cornelius in Caesarea, says, go get Peter. And so Cornelius does so. Now, he could have sent him out there on day one, or he could have sent him out the next day. It's 30 miles walking. Day two, the messengers arrive in Joppa, and that's the day that Peter receives his vision. Peter asks him in to eat and so forth. Day three, the next day, the group sets out for, for from Joppa. They probably didn't make it in one day. They spent the night. Day four, they arrive at Cornelius' house. I'm assuming they had this, they spent the night on the road. doesn't really matter. I just, for the sake of accuracy and completeness, I thought I would put that in there. And remember, as I said in the previous audio, that when Cornelius was praying, was it 3 o'clock in the afternoon? That was the standard hour of prayer for the Jews during the great Mincha. Minka, I don't know how to pronounce it, M-I-N-C-H-A-H, Minka. Cornelius mentions that the angel mentioned Cornelius' act of charity. He wasn't too modest about that. Acts 10.4, looking intently at him, he became afraid and said, Was it, what is it, Lord? That's Cornelius looking intently at the angel. The angel told him, Cornelius, your prayers and your acts of charity has come up as a memorial offering before God. So Cornelius was a good, kind man. But he knew his kindness and his acts of charity were not enough for his salvation. That's why he wanted Peter to come up there. He wanted to have assurance of salvation. Verse 33 of Acts 10. Therefore, Cornelius continues, I, Cornelius, immediately sent for you, Peter, and you, you, Peter, did the right thing in coming. So we are all present before God. That means all my friends and family and me, all of whom are Gentiles, the soldiers and the slaves, to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius says it was the right thing in coming. The NIV translates that it was good of you to come. It was just a polite thing to say. And the therefore there, what's, what is it there for? Therefore I mentally sent for you. In other words, because I had that vision. And what he's saying here, it wasn't because I'm a big shot Roman soldier that I asked you to come. And he wasn't that big of a shot. He was ahead of 100 soldiers. But he didn't, he didn't pull any kind of rank. He said, look, the reason I came is because I had a vision from God asking you to come. And so then Cornelius says, we are all present before God. In other words, we're sitting here waiting to hear what you got to say. Talk about getting set up for a sermon or a teaching or an evangelistic session. Peter was. We go to verses 34 and 35 of Acts chapter 10. Then Peter began to speak. And he says this, now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. Now, of course, this is a big deal again with Peter. He's Jewish. He can't believe that the kingdom of God is for Gentiles. The whole idea of the Jewish Messianic kingdom was that it was Jewish, and the whole world would basically bow down to the Jews on Mount Zion. And here, God is telling Peter to go talk to these nasty dogs of Gentiles. But no, now Peter is starting to get more universalistic in his approach. He doesn't realize he realizes that the gospel is for everybody, including Gentiles, and God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't show favoritism in people's station in life. 
He doesn't show favoritism in the material possessions, as James points out in James 2, verse 1. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't show favoritism in nationality. He doesn't, you know, all that matters is do you believe in him. That's what matters. The person, that's an individual, not a nation, not a race, not an ethnic group, but the person who fears him. And does righteousness is acceptable to him. Now, I'm assuming that that does righteousness means after you get saved, you you, you have a fruit of your fruit of salvation, which is righteousness, and that's acceptable to him. I do not believe that that means that your righteousness makes you acceptable to him. You always have to be careful about that. Romans 2.11 says, there is no favoritism with God. Now, that Paul was referring to Jews and Greeks, and that's, of course, what Peter's referring to here. There's no favoritism. So Peter says it, and Paul says it. Now, Peter says in every nation, the person who fears him, that means reverentially fears God. It doesn't mean slavishly fears God, coweringly fears God. It means who treats God with reverence. That's the person that God accepts. He's not cared about your race, religion, color, creed, or national origin. Going back to this phrase, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to God, to him. That couldn't refer to good works, because if that were the case, then Cornelius would already be saved, because he had plenty of good works in charity. So, why would he need to hear Peter? So, I think Peter is talking about those who accept Christ or acceptable, accept the message of salvation or acceptable to God, not people who do good works. Lots of people were doing good works, including Cornelius, but they weren't saved. Now, I say that, but there is a Differing opinion on this, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that Cornelius actually was already saved. I find this hard to believe, but he does. Here's his quote. He sends Peter, God sends Peter, not to be the instrument of his, Cornelius's conversion, as this is very frequently called. Yeah, very frequently, because that's what it was, as this is very frequently called, but simply to show him the way of God more perfectly, as before to the devout Ethiopian eunuch. Well... The Ethiopian eunuch wasn't saved either. He got saved. So I, I really think that this is Jameson Foss and Brown are off base here. I think that Cornelius was not saved at all. At all. But I will also point out if Jameson Foss and Brown are right, then we got one more piece of evidence for subsequence, that charismatic doctrine that says that regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit that occurs before the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs, and there's a piece of time there between regeneration and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's nice. I believe in that kind of pneumatology, but I don't think that this, I don't, I'm not going to use Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown to back that up because I believe that in this case it's just an exception to the rule. There's four other places where there is subsequence. We don't need to find another one here to rescue the Pentecostal doctrine of subsequence. We go to verse 36 in Acts chapter 10. He, that's God, sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. This is Peter continuing to preach to Cornelius and his friends and family. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Now, he's not talking about all individually. He's, talk, talking about, he's not talking about all without exception. He's talking about all without distinction. It means he's Lord of Gentiles. Excuse me. He's Lord of Jews, and he's Lord of Greeks. That, again, is the theme. All through this chapter is God accepts the Gentiles. And, of course... In one sense, Jesus Christ is Lord of everybody without exception, because every now and every, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess at the very end. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about Lord of Jews and Lord of the Greeks, the Gentiles also. The good news of peace is what's being proclaimed. Peace, peace with God. That's what he's talking about. We used to be enemies with God, as Paul says in Romans. Now we're friends of God, and we have peace through Christ. We're reconciled to him 
through the preaching of the word and the belief in his gospel. Now, when we have peace with God, there are certain side benefits, side effects, which is we end up in it with peace with each other. Not perfectly yet, but we can approach that. Acts 10, verse 37 and 38. Peter continues, You know the events that took place throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. You know all that, Peter says. How did they know that? Well, we're still in the 30s. I don't know exactly where. We know Jesus died in AD 30, or some people say 33. I'm going to say 30. So it was just several years before that all this Jesus' ministry took place in Judea and Galilee, and the Romans and their family and their servants and their soldiers and the soldiers, they were all there in Judea or Galilee in Israel. So they saw it all or heard about it. So that's why Peter says, you know about it. They knew about it, but they didn't understand the implications of it. Peter's about to tell them. Now, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, an anointing is done for a prophet, a priest, and a king. And Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. And he says that he went about doing good and healing all. What kind of good was he doing? He was healing people. Healing is a good thing. Anybody's been sick, when you get healed, ooh, isn't it wonderful? When you get sick, ooh, isn't it bad? And these people were under the tyranny of the devil. Now, of course, they were under the tyranny of the devil in lots of ways, demon possession, for example. But notice that the he, uh, being under the tyranny of the devil is sounds like people who were prior to their getting healed, which sounds like being sick is being under the tyranny of the devil. And I'm telling you, anybody that's ever been sick knows how bad that is. It ain't nothing good about it. Now, it doesn't mean the devil is directly, inv directly involved. It could have been because of the fall of the human race or because of the, how the physical universe is screwed up. That we might have caught a germ or something, of course. But the point is, it's evil to be sick, and it's good to get healed. And Jesus went about healing people who were sick. And by the way, by doing that, Jesus proved that he was the Messiah. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me. This is exactly what Peter said to Cornelius in verse 38, Acts 10, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah says, The Lord has anointed me, talking about the Lord has anointed the Messiah, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal, me the Messiah, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's the year of jubilee, and the day of our God's vengeance, that's the day of judgment, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees, planted by the Lord to glorify him. That'll cheer you up. That's what the Messiah's kingdom's all about. Luke 4, 18 through 21, Jesus says the same thing. And quoting Isaiah 61, well, let me read it to you again. It doesn't, doesn't hurt to hear it again in the quotation in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Peter says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Adam Clark makes the point that there is no indication that Jesus did any miracle before he was anointed with the Holy Spirit at John's baptism. And that just emphasizes a point. Jesus is baptized in the Holy Spirit. He starts doing miracles. The apostles are baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts, those four passages, passages in Acts. And guess what they start doing? They start doing miracles. They do other things, too. They preach. They speak in tongues. But, and they, sometimes they prophesy. But they also did miracles for witness. 
Witness, miracles are a fantastic way to witness about the gospel. John Gill makes the point about this Jesus doing good. Peter says that he, that he, Jesus, went about doing good and healing all. Gill says the good that Jesus did was specifically the healing all that Peter is talking about here. But the, the good that Jesus did would also include preaching the news of the kingdom. I think Gill's probably true there, probably correct there says he healed them all. Now here's some options of that that fuzzy little word all, that slippery word all. It could be all who were sick in Judea and Galilee. I don't think that's reasonable because not every sick person would have made it out to listen to Jesus preach. Peter could have meant that healing all means healing a whole lot of very many because that's what the word could mean if you look in the lexicon. It's very easy to prove. Well, that could be because Jesus did heal a whole lot of people and very many. But I think that most probably it means all who came to Jesus seeking healing. The understood condition there is that if you came to get healed, you got healed. And I think Jesus did heal everybody that came to him, at least. I don't think he said, well, gee, I don't think I can handle that one. We go to verse 39 and 41 of Acts 10. We ourselves are witnesses. That means we, the apostles. Probably not the six, the the three brothers that went up from Yapa because they were not, who knows who they were. They were just unknown brothers. They might have been people from Yapa, as far as we know. But they weren't apostles. But Peter, when he says we ourselves, I'm sure he's referring to the apostles. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. Yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen. And this is something I've just noticed going through Acts. Is how many times when an evangelistic message was preached in Acts was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead mentioned. It is a central point of the gospel message. And the, and the evangelistic technique of the apostles. They mentioned the resurrection, something I haven't been doing, really, and, and it needs to be done, I think. We need to emphasize when we tell people about Jesus. Jesus rose again from the dead. Peter says, God raised up this man on the third day. He continues to preach to Cornelius and the household there. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, by Peter and the other apostles, and probably maybe by the other disciples, too, who weren't necessarily apostles. There was lots of disciples, of course, who saw what Jesus did. But by us, witnesses appointed beforehand by God, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And again, that really does sound like the apostles, because they were the ones that ate and drank with him. When did they eat and drink with him? Well, we know they ate and drank with him up at Galilee, John 21, 12 through 15. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. This is after the ascension, after the first two Sunday night appearances, after the resurrection. Jesus told them, go to Galilee. They're up there by the lake. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because, who are you? because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he raised from the dead, the first two being those first two Sunday nights. When they had eaten breakfast... Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me, and so forth. Now, why do you think that Peter mentions to Cornelius that they had eaten and drinking, ate and drank with Jesus? It's a little detail. Was it necessary? Does it mean anything? Well, I think so, because I think that what they're trying, what Peter's trying to do is say, look, he was killed. He was dead. And then we ate and drank with him after he was killed. What does that prove? That proves the resurrection. He was killed, then everybody saw him walking around, and then we ate and drank with him. And he rose from the dead. So, again, the whole point of this evangelistic thrust is resurrection. Now, notice that Peter tells Cornelius they killed him, killed Jesus, by hanging him on a tree. Who's the they? Well, he, he doesn't have a specific reference for the pronoun they, 
But of course, it's the Romans and the Jews. Now, the primary guilt for the crucifixion can be too narrow or too broad. If you if you make it too narrow, you say, well, it was only the Romans that killed the Jews, not killed Jesus, not the Jews, because they're the ones that hung him up on the cross. Well, yeah, but who turned who turned Jesus over to the Romans? Besides, Jesus' many words show that the Jews killed Jesus. How about all those parables? I'm going to burn down your kingdom. How about the, I can't even keep them all straight, the parable of the wedding feast, the guy goes out and comes back and invites everybody to the wedding feast and nobody wants to come and then, and all that, you know, all, your, all those parables. How about all the woes that Jesus pronounced on the Jews in Matthew 23, right before he gave the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24? How about in Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about all the evils that are going to fall on that Jewish kingdom? So yeah, the Jews killed Jesus. Now, you can say, well, the Jews didn't have legal authority for crucifixion, so it wasn't really the Jews that did it, it was the Romans that did it. No, they turned Jesus over to the Romans. So, obviously, we're not going to let the, that generation of Jews off the hook. But now, we can say that they, the they that kill Jesus is all the Jews at all time, and that's too broad of assignment of blame. We cannot say that all Jews everywhere for all times are guilty. We don't say all Italians to the present day, are guilty for what the Romans did, do we? So why would we accuse the Jews of that for all all time? It was only that evil generation that Jesus talked about in Matthew 23 that died, that suffered for what they had done to Jesus, and they suffered when their kingdom was wiped out in AD 70, and the guilt was expunged at that time. And every Jew that came after that was not any more guilty of killing Jesus than you and I were. Now, there is a general theological sense in which Jesus died for all our sins, and people sometimes say that. But I'm talking about direct guilt for putting him up on the cross. No, Jews are not guilty for that. When the Jewish crowd said, May his guilt be on our heads and our children as Jesus was being crucified, in that verse, well, I don't have the site right in front of me, but the verse for the children, when it says, when they say, let his guilt be on the heads of our children, that children is the Greek word for child, not for descendant, which means one generation later, which is the generation that lasted all the way up to 8070 when everybody got killed in the Jewish war. And so they did not imprecate themselves for all times. I say that because there's been so much anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages and people are so sensitive about this. I can't emphasize enough. This is the perfect answer, by the way, if some Jewish person starts getting on you about anti-Semitism and such. Don't deny that it happened, but point out that the Bible's not anti-Semitic. And, and another good thing to say is, yeah, really, Christianity's anti-Semitic, huh? Jesus is Jewish, and 11 of his 12 disciples were Jewish. Luke was Gentile. And you're trying to tell me that Christianity is anti-Semitic, and the early church was entirely Jewish? Come on. The Jews hung him on a tree. They turned him over to to the Romans, because they did just attire Jesus' death. They wanted a horrible death for Jesus. Crucifixion, more pain, more torture, more shame. They also, if they let the Romans do it, that threw off the scandal of his death to the Romans so they could wash their hands and say, hey, we didn't have anything to do with it, but yes, they did. They turned Jesus over to the Romans. God was raised up on the third day. Let me mention this too. The Jewish way to count of days is a piece of a day, even if it's just for one minute. That counts for one day. Jesus was... Uh, crucified on Friday, that's day one. Saturday, he was in the tomb, that's day two. Early Sunday morning, he raised, that's three days. It wasn't 24 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours. It was a part of a day Friday, all day Saturday, and a little part of the day Sunday. That's three days. Now, three days was long enough to prove that he was dead, as Adam Clark says, but it was not so long as to allow claims that disciples had stolen Jesus from the tomb. 
In other words, if it had been two months and all of a sudden Jesus rose again from the dead, people would say, yeah, sure, the tomb's empty. You've had empty. You've had two months to come steal the body. The Jews have pulled the guard off the tomb a long time before that, before two months. And so you stole the body. So don't tell me Jesus rose again from the dead. No, that's not possible because he rose after three days, during which time the tomb was guarded by the Jewish guard. Or by the Rome, I should say by the Roman guard that the Jews sent. Now notice also in verse 41, Peter tells Cornelius that he, Jesus, rose from the dead. doesn't say who rose Jesus from the dead, and this is sort of interesting. John Gill says that here, resurrection is ascribed to Jesus himself. I don't think Gill's right about that. If you read it, it says he rose from the dead, but it doesn't say who rose, who rose him from the dead. Does it say God rose Jesus from the dead? Does it say Jesus rose himself from the dead? Or does it say that the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead? It just doesn't say. It just says Jesus rose from the dead. He got up. It doesn't say who was the agent. So I think Gill is wrong about that. However, there are verses that prove that God himself, most verses say God rose Jesus from the dead. For example, Romans 10, 9, 1 Peter 1, 21, Galatians 1, 1, and Ephesians 1, 17 and 20. I'm not going to read them because that's easy. God raised from the dead. But how about Jesus? Did he rose, rose, rise himself, raise himself up? How about John 2, 19? Jesus answered them. Jesus answered the, his critics. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about his body, of course. And in three days I will raise that body up. So Jesus himself rose himself up. I think there are other scriptures too, which I haven't bothered to run down. But uh, there you have it. Both God the Father and 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 Jesus himself rose himself up. Notice that Peter, in his evangelistic message to Cornelius' house, mentions that that Jesus was seen, not by all the people, but by us, was seen by us. What is Peter trying to do here? He's trying to base his testimony on evidence, credible evidence. Christianity, Christianity is not based on myths, but it's based on historical fact. And that's so important. Everywhere you read, in the Gospels or in Acts, you see credible testimony, credible history credible witnesses to miracles and, and so forth, and to speeches. He mentions witnesses here. Peter does to Cornelius. Jesus was seen not only by us, by us disciples, but all witnesses who were appointed beforehand by God. Now, the us there could mean the apostles, but also there were other witnesses besides the apostles. There were 500 brethren at once, as mentioned in, in Galatia, in, uh, at the end of John, when Paul was up by the sea of, when Jesus was up by the Sea of Galilee, and besides, there's Mary Magdalene. There's the twelve apostles on the two Sunday nights. There's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Simon Peter saw him individually once. There's a lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of resurrection witnesses. And again, all these witnesses could very easily say, "No, none of this happened. I never saw him." What are you talking about? But they did. They said, "Yeah, we saw him. We talked to him." You want witnesses? They're everywhere. Israel was not that big a place. They could be run down and could be interrogated. But the, but the testimony was so overwhelming, nobody could deny that Jesus had risen from the dead. What people do today is, I just don't care. I ain't got time to read the Bible. I ain't got time to study whether it's historical or not. Do you have time to go to hell? That's that's the sad thing, is that their sins are not covered when they don't accept Jesus. And they just look in the scriptures and see how overwhelmingly certain it was that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he is recorded that he did. Well, then people would then have their sins forgiven and they'd live, have eternal life instead of losing their life when they die. Let me give you a quote from Madam Clark on this point of credible witness. Quote, these witnesses were every, quote, these witnesses, quote, were every 
were every way best qualified to give evidence on the subject, persons who were always to be found, who might at all times be confronted with those, if any such should offer themselves, who could pretend to prove that there was any imposture in this case, and persons who, from the very circumstances in which they were placed, must appear to have an absolute conviction of the truth of all they attested. Basically, that's using fancy language to say what I just said. You want, you doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? Go talk to these witnesses. They'll tell you. They'll refute anybody who says otherwise. Some people say that the witnesses Adam that uh, Peter is referring to is the twelve apostles. Some people say it's the six people he brought with him, with him from Yapa. I don't think so. I think that's a stretch. As Adam Clark suggests, that is an option. Now let's look at verse forty-one. Peter tells Cornelius that Jesus was seen not by all the people. The question arises, why did Jesus not show himself to everybody? Why did he choose those 512 apostles and the women at the tomb and so forth? Why did he just choose a few people? Or it's not really just a few, 500 is more than a few, but he didn't show himself to everybody. Why didn't he not show himself to everybody? Well, here's Adam Clark's opinion as to why not. There would have been tumult and chaos People would start saying, this is he, or that is he. Who's the who's Jesus? And everybody would say, say, wait, I saw him. No, you saw him. Where was he? The valid testimony would be lost in the confusion of the multitude, says Adam Clark. Some might have rejected him again because, they, because they'd say, ah, I don't, you don't know where he is or who he is. Everybody's just talking nonsense, contradicting themselves. This would this hinder the establishment of the church. The best witnesses, Adam Clark continues, are those who knew him best. He didn't just show himself. Jesus didn't just show himself to anybody when he came back. He showed himself to people who he knew, his disciples. 500 witnesses was plenty to get the word out. He didn't need to show himself to everybody. If he showed himself to a stranger that didn't know him, is that stranger going to recognize him? Is that stranger going to say, yeah, well, uh, I don't know. Are you really the man who's, who preached and who did you really rise again from the dead? But when he appears to people who are crying over his death and a heart wrenched, a heartbroken, and and their guts have been wrenched out, and all of a sudden there he is. Oh, now their testimony becomes very credible. Verse 42 of Acts 10: He, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the Judge of the living and the dead. Apparently, Peter's referring to the Great Commission here when he says He commanded us to preach. Matthew 28:19. This is up near the Sea of Sea of Galilee on the mountain there. Not exactly sure whether it's before the 12 or before the 500. But Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission. Peter refers to the Great Commission to Cornelius. Notice that he says that Jesus is a judge of the living and the dead. That's another thing he put into his evangelistic sermon. The fact that God is judge. Jesus is judge. Jesus is appointed by God to be judge. Now remember, Jesus didn't come into the world for judgment because the world was already judged, but he did come into the world. He is appointed at the end of the world. God, What does it say in John? That God has placed all judgment in his hands, into the Son's hands. So he's going to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now that living and the dead is actually a little ambiguous. Adam Clark points that out. It could refer to all that had died before Peter spoke. God is going to judge all the people that are living right now as I speak and all the people that have died before my speaking right now, before the time of my speech right now, I don't think that's what Peter, Peter meant. I think Peter meant all those who were dead at Christ's return. In other words, when Jesus comes back at the end of the world, 
He judges those who are still living when he comes back and those who have died before he comes back. Both the righteous and the unrighteous at the same time in a general resurrection without a thousand year gap between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the dead. And you can tell that I'm thinking about John 5 here where those who come out of the tombs, both the righteous and the unrighteous, he will raise up, he will bring out of the tombs. In other words, I unfortunately am not pre-mill. We go to Acts 10 verse 43. All the prophets testify about him, Peter continues preaching to Cornelius and his friends and family. All the prophets testify about him that through his name everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Now here's an interesting question. Did you know that in the Old Testament the prophets prophesied about forgiveness of sins? I have never thought about it before until I gathered all these verses together. And there's tons of places in the Old Testament where the prophets are prophesying about forgiveness of sins. I'm going to read them for you very quickly. Psalm 32.1. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Hmm, maybe David, David is called a prophet somewhere, so that's a prophecy. Well, I mean, that might not, particular psalm might not be a prophecy, but David's a prophet. Daniel 9.9. 9. Remember now, Peter has told Cornelius all the prophets testify about him, so he is... He's saying that in the Old Testament, you could find prophecy about forgiveness of sin. Daniel 9, 9, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Now that peace means no more enemies with God, which means forgiveness of sins. That's not quite as direct as the other ones are, but the idea is there. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims, proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The minister, that herald, proclaims salvation. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace. There's that word peace again, our peace with God. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Isaiah 53, 6, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, the Lord God Father has punished the Son, for the iniquity of us all. Forgiveness of sins. Isaiah 59, 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, and those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So we're going to get redeemed from our transgressions. Isaiah 59. Jeremiah 31:34. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. More forgiveness in the Old Testament. Prophesied about the new. Daniel 9:24. This is the famous 70 weeks prophecy. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end to put a stop to sin, to wipe out iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy, to wipe away iniquity at the end of those 70 weeks, or 69 weeks actually, which is uh, when Jesus died on the cross and wiped away our iniquity. Micah 7:18. Who is a God like you, removing iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. Ah, more forgiveness in Micah. Now in Zechariah 13:1, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David. Of course, that's the fountain of Jesus' blood. And for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. To wash away sin and impurity. So 
Peter is saying something that's very true here. All the prophets testify about Jesus. And again, this emphasizes something that I've come to believe very strongly in studying prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. It points to the first advent, not the second advent. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people, a lot of pre-mill dispensationalist types that like to say that prophecy points to the millennium. No, it does not, in my humble opinion. I could be wrong. But in my view, prophets prophesy about the first advent, the forgiveness of sins. And here's a good example of it right here. Acts 10.43, all the prophets prophesying about forgiveness of sin. That's the first advent, not the second advent. We go to verse 44, 45, and 46 in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Now, first point, they weren't astounded because they were speaking in tongues. They all knew about speaking in tongues. Peter spoke in tongues at Peter Pentecost. They knew they were totally familiar with that. What they were astounded was is God had done this for the Gentiles. He had got Gentiles saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Gentiles, those dirty dogs, that's what they were amazed about. I'm sure they had already heard Peter's vision, but, you know, hearing a vision was one time. But, boy, when you actually see it fulfilled, ooh, that's when they got astounded. Now, how did they know that they had gotten saved? It says, for they heard them speaking in other tongues because they knew that that was exactly what happened to them at Pentecost, and so they knew they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they had to be saved. And here's an incidental detail. It says they were speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God, speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues. That is one of the functions of speaking in tongues is declaring the greatness of God. It's also to edify oneself, as Paul pointed out. He said, I'll pray in the mind, I'll pray in the Spirit. Pray in the mind, my mind is not edified. I pray in the spirit, my spirit is edified. Of course, that's one reason. But also to praise God is another reason. Now, the Holy Spirit coming down, I've called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In just a minute, I'm going to show you why I'm perfectly uh, justified in calling it that. But before I talk about that, let's listen to what John Gill says. He says that when the Holy Spirit came down on them, it was Peter is not referring to, or excuse me, not Peter, but Luke in in recording this, is not referring to the Holy Spirit coming down on the house of Cornelius in regeneration. He says that what Peter's referring to is the Holy Spirit coming down on those disciples, even as the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I think Gill is exactly right. He quotes, Gill does, in order to prove that point, Acts 11.15, when Peter's going back to, to Jerusalem to, re, to give to the Jerusalem saints there, a report about what happened at Cornelius' house, Peter says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. The Holy Spirit came down in Acts 11.15, Acts 10.44. The Holy Spirit came down. Well, there's the exact same terminology about the same event. And then in Acts 11.15, it's the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us, meaning us apostles, at the beginning. At the beginning when? At the beginning of the church, Acts chapter 2. John Gill says that. And by the way, he is not a Pentecostal. Now, the fact that the Holy Spirit came down on ordinary people, servants, slaves, relatives, Cornelius, they were not apostles. This shows that apostles were not especially equipped at the expense of ordinary Christians. More than just the apostles received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, most probably, 120. Well, not just most probably, absolutely. Then what, 2,000 people received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? That means 2,000 people got saved. 
So the Holy Spirit fell on all those people. They weren't all apostles. You don't have to be an apostle to pray for somebody to receive the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be an apostle to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let me go and prove to you why the coming down on those who heard the message can be called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is the same thing that happened at Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, as Peter has already said in Acts 11. Before I do that, I tell you, let's go ahead and read verses 47 and 48. Peter continues, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized, baptized in water, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Peter uses the term receive the Holy Spirit, not baptize the Holy Spirit. Verse 48, And he, Peter, commanded them, Cornelius' house, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they, the people in Cornelius' house, asked him to stay for a few days. All right, now, these people have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, says Peter, okay? How? Just as we have? Just as we have how? Just as we have received it at the beginning in Acts 2. So that means received, is, this experience here is the same as happened in Acts 2. How is the experience in Acts 2 described? As being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's the same thing. Now, how can I say that being filled with the Holy Spirit, being received the Holy Spirit, is the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit? All right, I, I'm going to go through this. And show to you that logically, beyond a shadow of a doubt, to an ineluctable certitude, beyond any cavil, any doubt, any tergiversation, any prevarication, yes, they're all the same thing. Baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and received the Holy Spirit. They're the same thing. So let's do that. First of all, baptized in the Holy Spirit. We turn to Acts 1-4 to get that phrase. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, in Acts 1-4, Jesus is talking about what happened in Acts 2-4. He's saying, Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father will fall on you, and you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So he describes the experience of Pentecost as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We go to Acts 2-4, and we see the fulfillment of this promise, and we see that Luke does not use the term baptized in the Holy Spirit. He uses the term filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2-4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Acts 1-4 and Acts is the prediction of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The fulfillment of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is in Acts 2-4, and, and that is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. So now we have proved that baptizing the Holy Spirit is the same thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit. So now there's another expression used in the Pentecostal occurrences in Acts. For example, the disciples at Samaria, 8-8-17, Acts 8-17. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.47, this is where we are in Cornelius' house. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And in Acts 19, this is at Ephesus, 12 disciples at Ephesus, and he, Paul, said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And later on, they did receive the Holy Spirit. So you see the phrase, receive the Holy Spirit, is used for three of the Pentecostal of the five, three of the five Pentecostal passages in Acts. Acts 2 Pentecostal passages, the term filled is used. Acts 8 at Samaria, Acts 10 at Cornelius' house, and Acts 19, the word received is used. Well, now, how can we say that received is the same thing as being baptized and being filled? Well, we can do it with two scriptures. We can go to Acts 10, 47, 
the verse we just read, and read it again. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, Peter said, these people being the people in Cornelius' house. Can anyone withhold water for them who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Well, when did Peter receive the Holy Spirit? At Pentecost, that's what he's referring to. So now we logically, and since Pentecost is referred to as filling, and since Jesus predicted it as being baptized, we have now baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and received the Holy Spirit, all referring to the same experience. There's another way we can show that received is equal to baptized is equal to filled. We can go to Acts 11, verses 16 and 17, and this is actually a stronger verse, where Peter recounts his experience at Cornelius' house to the brothers in Jerusalem. And this is what Peter says. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now see, Peter's quoting Acts 1-4, where Jesus said, go wait in Jerusalem so you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Peter quotes Jesus' prediction of Pentecost, and he calls it baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then Peter goes on and says, If then God gave the same gift, quote, unquote, the same gift to them, to the people in Cornelius' house, as he gave to us at Pentecost when we received the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, that's a rhetorical question, which the answer is yes, of course he did. He gave the same gift. So now Peter has said that, Baptism in the Holy Spirit is the same thing as what happened at Pentecost, because it's the same gift as it happened at Pentecost. And they, and he, and he refers to the experience in Cornelius' house as being the same as being baptized in the Holy Spirit when he quotes Jesus in Acts 1-4. And then when we read in verse 47, Peter says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit as just as we have? So Peter in Acts 11, 16, and 17 connects the term baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then he says it's the same gift we got at Pentecost, so there's the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, that experience happened in Cornelius' house, and, and in Acts 10, Luke describes that, Luke, well, actually, Peter describes that as receiving the Holy Spirit. So you've got receiving the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and baptizing the Holy Spirit all means the same thing. And now, just to finish up this argument, let me mention that Paul could be said to be baptized in the Holy Spirit because he was said to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 9.17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has said to me that you may, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So if filling with the Holy Spirit is what happened with Paul, and it happened in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And Jesus referred to what happened at Pentecost as being baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 1-4. Therefore, we can say that Paul was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Now, just because they receive these five Pentecostal experiences, four of which there was obvious subsequence, conversion, space of time, and then baptism in the Holy Spirit, slash filling of the Holy Spirit, slash receiving of the Holy Spirit. There's subsequence. There's a period of time between those two events. There was not such a time, not such a discernible time, I'll put it that way, in Acts 10 at Cornelius' house. Now, what does John Gill say about this? And he's referring to the people at Cornelius' house. He says, No doubt they also had received the Spirit as a spirit of illumination and conviction, as a spirit of regeneration, sanctification, and conversion and as a spirit of faith and adoption, and as a witness, earnest, and pledge of future glory. In other words, they had the Holy Spirit in regeneration 
at the same time that they had this experience of being filled. Of course, the experience of being filled, baptized, received, that's for miracles, for power of the witness, and so forth. It's a different work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me also point out that a lot of people like to use this this occasion in Cornelius and say, see there, there wasn't always experience. Well, okay, if we want to keep score, I got four places in Acts where there was subsequence, and you got one place in Acts where there was not subsequence. Who wins? Four to one? Who wins? Okay. I'll just say that, yeah, this is exception to the rule. So what? Or I could say that God did, the Holy Spirit did a work of regeneration in those believers at Cornelius' house, and then he also did another work called baptism of the Holy Spirit. We just can't see the time between the two. Like we can't see the time between sanctification, positional sanctification. People get sanctified when they get regenerated, and they get regenerated. The Holy Spirit does two works at the same time. Why can't the Holy Spirit do three works at the same time? Justification, positional sanctification, and baptism in the Holy Spirit. All right, enough of that topic. We will now look at another, see if we can glean something else about this verse. In verse 48, he commanded them, as Peter commanded them, to be baptized. Now, who did he command? Sounds like Peter commanded his six companions that came from Yapa. Well, actually, he had three companions that came from Yapa. I should say his three companions, not his six companions. And now, if this is so, this, that's who he commanded. This scotches the erroneous idea that only a pastor can baptize. I remember a Baptist one time, Baptist woman, when we mentioned in baptizing people, she says, well, you're not a pastor. How can you do that? And I remember thinking, where does it say in the Bible that you have to be a pastor to baptize somebody? I never saw it. I've been looking for 50 years now. I still haven't seen it. These three companions of Peter, if that was who Peter commanded to baptize, and who else could he have commanded? He was there with his three companions. The rest of the people there weren't even saved except five, five minutes before that, so it would have to be those three companions. Where does it say that they were apostles, or pastors even? If they were, it wasn't too obvious to me. Now, the fact that the baptism of the Holy Spirit here came before the baptism in water shows that the order of Holy Spirit and water baptism is irrelevant. And as Adam Clark points out, in other cases, believers received water baptism first, Holy Spirit afterwards. For example, in Acts 19, 4, 6, this is at Ephesus. Paul runs into 12 disciples who, were un, who had only been baptized with John's repentance. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means they were baptized in water, of course. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and prophesy. And there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit came after the water baptism. And in another verse in that passage, it says that's receiving of the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing as Holy Spirit baptism. So, but that's not my point here. The point here is that water baptism came first, and then Holy Spirit baptism. The order is not that important. I will say, though, that both water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism, the general pattern is pretty soon after conversion. You don't have to be a theologian to get water baptized or Holy Spirit baptized. You don't have to be a spiritual giant. You don't have to be holy, holy, holy. You just have to ask for it in faith. Now you notice that the people there at Carthus house asked Peter and his friends to stay for a few days. Well, I'm sure they wanted to have some more instruction. Please teach us more, teach us more. They were hungry. Adam Clark points out that this is really the start of the Christian church as composed of Jews and Gentiles. This is the first Jew-slash-Gentile church, those three days there where they were together. Well, that's kind of a short-lived short church. That might be pushing a little bit, Adam. But at any rate, they did stay there in fellowship as Jews and Gentiles. And, of course, that's the big point of Chapter 10, the spread of the church beyond the Jewish mother church to the Gentile children's churches. I hope you enjoyed chapter 10 here. We'll take up chapter 11 next. 
we will see Peter return to the mother church of Jerusalem. Then we'll see about goings on at the church in Antioch, Jerusalem being the Gentile church, and Antioch being, excuse me, Jerusalem being the Jewish church, and Antioch being the Gentile church. We'll take that up in chapter 11. Hope you stay tuned for that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.